Our world is marked by the unknown, despair, failure, and brokenness. But that isn't the end of our story. Into this brokenness, God has woven a thread of hope. This thread winds through the scriptures, through history, and through our very lives, leading us to Jesus. In Jesus, we have hope in the face of the unknown. In Jesus, we have hope in the face of despair. In Jesus, we have hope in the face of failure. In Jesus, we have hope in the face of brokenness. In Him, we have a reason to hope, a living hope, a hope that does not disappoint. In Jesus, we have Most stories and movies begin with a, a huge action scene, some kind of hook that pulls you in. So it gets your attention and you want to follow along. The Gospel of Matthew begins with what feels like the credits. It reads like the credits. It starts by saying, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it lists over 40 names. It's an endless sea of names that most people hope to never have to read aloud, but woven in this tapestry of names is a thread. And this thread weaves throughout scripture, throughout the biblical narrative, throughout the generations, leading us from Abraham all the way to the birth of Jesus. And as we step into this Advent season, we're going to pull on this thread. We're going to hold tight to this thread and we're going to follow along as it leads us to hope again. Now, despite being a season that's full of bright lights that shine and Hallmark movies that are consumed endlessly, the Advent season always carries with it a certain tension. And for all the sparkling lights, there are many that don't see hope in this season. Many feel uh, the pain of, of loss or a failure or brokenness, despair, the unknown, and they feel it all the more acutely. It's almost as if the joy of this season casts such a great shadow that despair can grow quietly unseen. And this is where this simple list of names starts to weave a blanket, a blanket of hope that can give us warmth even in the coldest of nights. So today we pull this thread and we start at the beginning with Abraham. A man who left his home to follow where God would lead him, and a man who was promised to be father of a great nation that would be a blessing to all nations. But before Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham, he had to trust that God would give him even one son. And so as we hold tight to this thread of hope, this narrative of following along the life of Abraham, we step into the unknown alongside him. But as we will learn from Abraham and something he experienced throughout his life, that in the unknown, he continually looks to the known. So I want to pray for us as we jump in. Father, we thank you for this, uh, this story and Father, it's not just a story, it's the life of a man who lived in obedience to you. Not perfect, flawed failures show up throughout his life, but he kept moving towards you. Even when he was unsure of what would come next, he looked to you. And so Lord, in the unknowns that we face, would we continue to cling to you, the known, the creator, the author of our days. 
Would you give us eyes to see and experience what you would have us as we move this morning? We love you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you jump to Genesis 12, it's where we get our introduction to Abraham. And Genesis 12.1 reads like this. It says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham is told by God, go to the land that I will show you and I will bless you. I will make your name great. This sounds like an offer that he can't refuse, but what does Abraham really know about God in this moment? Well, from what we read here, there's not much to say that there's been this building relationship and yet we see God reaching out to Abraham and inviting Abraham into a life of trusting him. God calls Abraham to step into the unknown, to believe in his promise, and to walk where he's never been before. And so Abraham, we read on in Genesis, it says, So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. Abraham's life would be full of moments where his trust in God would be put to the test and he would continue to move forward in that unknown. Even the very promise that he would have a son would be a test of patience and belief. It's one thing for someone to say something will happen. It's a whole other thing when we are left to wonder how. How could this happen? And so even in the midst of this, Abraham and his wife Sarah, as they grew older, they saw their hopes of a child growing dimmer. And so they would try and make it happen by using one of Sarah's servants as a a surrogate. But this is not what God had in mind. He had something greater than they could even imagine. And so Abraham would eventually become a father to Isaac at the age of 100 years old. And now the promise was fulfilled before him. You would think in the life of Abraham, he could sit back and rest in all that God had put before him. But that's not the case. Which brings us to the thread that I want us to pull on a little more tightly this morning where the thread of hope is being woven in the midst of confusion and the unknown and darkness. So I want you now to turn with me to Genesis chapter 22, where we're going to spend a bulk of our time looking at the the story of Abraham and his test. And beginning in verse 1 of chapter 22, it says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, Here I am. He said, This is the Lord speaking. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, I know we're we're jumping in. This is supposed to be Christmas time where we have all the warm fuzzies. And this passage is not one that brings that out. I know some are, are furious when they read through this passage. How could... God asked Abraham to do such a thing. God had promised Abraham that he'd be a father of nations. He promised a son, and now he's telling him to take his one and only son and to sacrifice him. How could God test Abraham in such a horrible fashion? It's a similar feeling we have when we read through the book of Job and we watch all the disasters and calamities that come upon Job. 
But here we see that Abraham is being tested. God is training him up in the way in which he should go. And through this training, through this testing, how is he going to respond? Now again, when we read this, we think the worst. And this is usually what we experience when we step into an unknown situation. This is why no one walks down a dark alley in the middle of San Francisco in the middle of the night and thinks, oh, well, this is a lovely place to be. No, our minds generally run to the worst case scenario and all the things that can happen to us, all the dangers that lurk in those shadows. And so when we approach a passage like this, it challenges our thinking about who God is and why he would allow something like this. But to be clear from the jump, because the question that comes out of this is, is God for child sacrifice? Now, now think about that for a moment. The culture that Abraham lived in, there were many gods, lowercase g gods, and there was many people that would worship them, and child sacrifice had become a cultural norm, something that was a part of this. And so for Abraham, this question, this journey in this moment wouldn't have been nearly as shocking as it is for us. When we hear this, we recoil in horror. But what does God think of this? See, that's something I think we have to deal with before we jump through the story. When we look centuries later, God would send a prophet by the name of Jeremiah who would actually speak out against this very practice that was permeating the culture of the day. And Jeremiah's words that the Lord had given him were that the Lord does not command it, this is not what he wants, nor does it come to his mind. This is something that is so far out of God's mind. This is not something that he would seek for others to participate in. This is an abomination. Ezekiel, another prophet, would say the same thing, speaking out against the practice of child sacrifice. So then the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is God up to in this moment? If God abhors this, if God sees the, the beauty of life that he's created, then, then what's going on here? Well, I believe that he's doing what he does so often. God is using a, a cultural norm, something that humans understand, something that humans participate in to create a new way. See, I love how Joshua Ryan Butler puts this. He says, God is setting an alternative trajectory for his people with the goal that the cruel practice will eventually be abolished. God is providing a new way. He's taking a way that was known. He's saying, no, 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 this, this is not the groove in which you should go. I have a better way, the ancient way, the way in which you are to flourish. And so here God is threading the needle and calls Abraham to offer his son, his only son, the son he loves. You notice that language there? It just builds on top of each other, emphasizing again and again the love and hope that Abraham has found in his son Isaac. Isaac, the son of the promise. Isaac, the second name on the list that we find in the genealogy given to us by Matthew and his gospel. And here Abraham is called to go to the land of Moriah and offer Isaac as a burnt offering. Now we'll hear again of Moriah in scripture. It's mentioned in 2 Chronicles 3.1. It's the place where Solomon would build the temple. But here Abraham is called to the land of Moriah to where he will sacrifice his son, his one and only son. So picking back up in verse three, it says, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. 
See, Abraham hears this call from God, and what does he do? He proceeds forward. We don't know the thoughts that filled his mind. We're not given that information, and yet here we find him chopping wood, preparing for the journey. And honestly, if we step back from a moment and we recognize the age that Abraham is over 100 years old in this moment, the task of chopping wood at his age and his stature, it would have been handled by servants. But here we see Abraham. Uh, There's work to be done and, and I think a needed distraction. And so he begins to split the wood. And on the third day, Abraham looks up in their journey and he sees the destination. Then verse five, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife and they went both of them together. So they've gone on this journey and they leave the two helpers behind. Isaac is loaded up with the wood. Abraham grabs the fire and the knife, the the fire for burning the sacrifice, the knife for killing the sacrifice. And he tells his servants to, to stay, that he and Isaac will go and worship and that they will come again to them. Now here in this this language and what Abraham is saying, we hear him choosing to trust even in this moment. He believes that they will return together. We will return. Whether he was saying this out loud to convince himself or whether he was saying this as a prayer of what he hoped would happen, Abraham and Isaac went out together. Now picking up in verse 7, we read this. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Again, as we're reading this passage, we sense Isaac's growing questions, his growing awareness of what's happening. Maybe he could feel the tension in his father. Maybe it was the quiet way in which they plodded along that gave him pause that something significant was happening here. Because he looked around and he recognized that there was no sacrifice, there was no lamb, but Abraham trusted. And he answered his son by saying, God would provide. The how and the when, he hadn't a clue as to what that would look like, but they continued to walk up the mountain into the unknown. Verse 9, we read on. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, when we read this, there are a few things I want us to pay attention to. It says they came to the place which God had told them and Abraham built the altar there and he puts the wood all together and then he binds Isaac and he lays him on the altar. Now, when we read this story, typically as we're going through this account, we picture Isaac at a certain age. But we're actually not told how old Isaac is. There's actually some varying thought as to how old he possibly could be. We know that he was weaned by this time, that there was some time after. So he's probably over the age of five at the very least. But then in the next time we get any inclination of his age, it's when his mother passes away, when Sarah dies, and 
he would have been about 37 at this time. And so some scholars, some rabbis, they look at this and they read through the story and they see that he potentially could have been anywhere between the age of 25 and 33. Now, I look at this and what sticks out to me is that Isaac was able to carry the wood. He was strong enough to make it up the mountain holding that wood. He was also strong enough to go on a three days journey with his father who was well over 100 years old. All of this tells me that he's probably older than we imagine in our minds and that he had enough strength that he could have fought off his father in this moment. And yet we see that he allowed his father to bind him and he allowed his father to lay him on the wood. Now, I'm not trying to soften the image because I don't think this does. It becomes even more heartbreaking as we imagine these two are coming together to offer the most precious of sacrifices before the Lord. And still in this moment, we're wondering what, what is happening? What is the trajectory of this moment? And in verse 10, we read of Abraham's faith. Then Abraham reached out his hand. He took the knife to slaughter his son. Abraham reaches for the knife. And in this moment, laying before him is the very promise of God. In this moment before him is laying the very nation of Israel, the Hebrew people. You see, for Isaac was Abraham's son and Abraham was to be the father of a nation. Even still, when Jewish people read this story, they see themselves on the altar as represented by Isaac. And Abraham now wields his knife, and in the unknown, he continues to trust the known. Verse 11, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. The urgency is felt here in the repetition of his name. And it continues on. He says, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. In this test, Abraham continues to look into the unknown by holding firmly to the known promises of God. And in this moment, the Lord provides life. Abraham and Isaac make their way up the hill, not knowing that there's a ram waiting on the other side for them. They stepped forward trusting and hoping in him, but willingly laying down their lives and trusting that God was good even when they could not see the good. You see, Abraham had lived his life by trial and error. He had great moments of triumph and moments that he probably wished that we couldn't read about. And yet in all of this, he learned over and over again to trust, to trust in God, to trust in his promise, to trust in the hope of the known, even in the unknown. Now we read this and you may be asking, okay, what what do we do with this? What does this mean for us? Well, first, let me point out what becomes pretty clear in this passage. 
that God is good even when we cannot see the good. God is good even when we cannot see the good. Now, now hear me out because you may be saying this story has a really strange way of showing that. Because the image we often have of God is that he's just waiting to pounce upon every one of our mistakes. Now let me be clear in this. God hates sin. He wants no part of it, can have no part of it. He is so holy, so other. He hates that it lives in our wrong actions. He hates that it's a part of us. And yet, in his goodness, he continues to thread hope into our very being. We are made and designed to live with him in relationship with him. And this testing of Abraham into the unknown allows Abraham, again, to not strive for control in this moment, but to trust in the one who has control of all things. As God is focusing Abraham on the giver of the gifts, not merely just the gifts, God's also revealing his intentions, that his motives are good, even when we cannot see the good ourselves. Now, I know for, for some of you, you may need to understand and, and sit with that idea, that notion that God is good. You may have a hard time trusting that he has any good intentions towards you. You may only see the mountain that is ahead and not the ram that God will provide upon it. But God's invitation for each and every one of us is to trust in his goodness, even when we can't see it. So God is, is good, even when we cannot see the good. Here's the other thing, the second thing that I see in this. God makes a way for life. God makes a way for life. Like we've already talked about, in, in the unknown, we often assume the worst. And yet in this moment, we see God taking what could have been a catastrophe of moments and providing a way for life. It's a theme that resounds and is woven throughout Scripture, a thread of life, a thread of hope that wraps around us and invites us into life with him. See, Isaac was the nation of Israel. It was seen in that he was the, the next in line, that through him the promise was going to be fulfilled. And in this moment, he was the one and only descendant laid down on this pile of wood to be sacrificed. And all of that was about to be gone. But even in this moment, God is saying there's another way. There is another, one who will bear this burden on your behalf. And the ram is found in the thicket, and it's the ram that would be sacrificed. You see, atop of Mount Moriah, an atoning sacrifice was made on our behalf, a foreshadowing of the sacrifice that would be made atop Mount Calvary on our behalf. Just as Isaac lay there bound, we lay there. Our sin, our shame, condemning us to death. The unknown before us can be so paralyzing. It can be crippling. And in this moment, we see the future when the death we deserved was passed over all because of the blood of a lamb. Because Jesus would be the ultimate lamb that would come and die in our place. Jesus, who would trust the known in the unknown. Jesus would be the truer and greater Abraham, who would leave his father's home into the unknown. And like Abraham's obedience, he would lead a nation to the promised land. Jesus' obedience would lead us to an eternal promised land. 
We also see that Jesus is the truer and greater Isaac. Isaac, who willingly laid down his life, but another was sacrificed in his place, it would be Jesus who ultimately would lay down his life in entirety, that in him we may have life. See, this is the thread of hope that we find from the very beginning of Jesus' family tree that we find in Matthew, woven throughout the generations, leading us to the truth that God is good, even when we cannot see the good, and that God makes a way for life. Now, in Matthew's intro to his gospel account, he gives us this genealogy. And at the end of this genealogy, in verse 17, we read this. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. 14, 14, 14. Why this distinction? Why is Matthew editing this genealogy in such a way to highlight this truth? Well, there are many who see the clarity of his intent, a thread woven to make a point. You see, 14 is the numeric value of the letters of King David's name. And the value of 14 is to point and to weave the theme that Jesus is king. And so when we hear that 14, 14, 14, what it is saying to us is that he is king, he is king, he is king. And even as we step into the unknown like Abraham, we can trust in our good king, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And as we continue to explore these stories found in the generations leading to Jesus, we will discover that each life is a thread pointing to the same hope and truth. The Messiah, our King, has come. So may you trust in the known as you step into the unknown. May you experience and trust the goodness of God even when you cannot see the good. And where there seems to be no way, trust that God has made a way for life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for these truths. That even in a moment that seems so stark and so void of hope, that you are moving and active and drawing us in, leading us into the unknown that we may trust in you. For you are good even when we cannot see the good and you are for life and you are making a way for life. So Father, for anyone who is listening now, who's yet to step into that, yet to trust you, would they see your goodness? Would they begin to lean towards you as you move towards them, Father? And trust that this thread of hope that leads to Jesus is a thread that any one of us can grab hold of and find hope in. We love you and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we conclude, I just want to say Merry Christmas to you all. As we step into this Advent season, we look forward to journeying alongside you as we read through our Advent calendar together as we continue to follow the thread of hope that leads to Jesus. And my prayer for you as you step out this week is that you would know his goodness anew, that you would trust his ways and that you would embrace life in him as you celebrate the thread of hope that is alive in our King. May you go in his grace and his peace. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.